podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Charles Tirrett, pros in effortless menswear, whether you need a casual weekend look or sharp tailoring. For the month of June, we're offering our listeners 20% off at Charles Tirrett with the code WISDOMPOD for use online and to quote in store. A busy show lies ahead. At the time of recording, England are 2-0 up in their ODI series against the Netherlands after breaking all sorts of records in the series opener. Catherine Brunt has announced her retirement from Test Cricket. The Blast group stage is reaching its climax. Chris Silverwood is enjoying a quietly impressive start to his time with Sri Lanka. And as well as all that and more, we've got some of your questions to answer. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today is the editor-in-chief of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker, and the managing editor of Wisden.com. Ben Garner. But before we go to them, let's hear Mark Butcher's thoughts on the England-Netherlands series, Owen Morgan's future and Jamie Overton's England test call-up. Butch, um, we're talking the day before the last game of the England-Netherlands series. Have you enjoyed your two days off in Amsterdam? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been all right. Played some played golf badly for two days uh, <laughs> and got a couple of early nights in. The weekend was rather lively, has to be said. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been all right, mate. What are your overall impressions of the series so far? I mean, from the outside, the atmosphere looks amazing. And with the differences between the white and red ball squads these days, it seems like the kind of local tour that England could actually take part in more often than they have previously. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess it probably could. Um, it's a bit of a trial run for uh, Cricket Netherlands, um, who I think were a little bit surprised by the, the volume of people and their, should we say, enthusiasm. Uh, <laughs> for uh for the the overstrength beer that they sell here um and uh, so yeah so things were things were a little bit chaotic chaotic in the first game and then they kind of they got their act together a bit more for the second one um yeah and i suppose it's a great opportunity i suppose if you if you're thinking about it from a fan's point of view um for though you know not everybody can afford a month in the west indies or the you know going down to south africa or wherever else um you know the traveling fans like to go and so yeah it's a, it's a really good opportunity to see the England team in action away from home. Um, and of course, it's not overly costly to do so. Mm, and then obviously, uh, we'll get to England in a second, but Netherlands are missing quite a few of their first choice players. Have there been any Dutch players who've caught your eye so far? Yeah, I, I thought, I like quite like the look of Tim Pringle, the uh, the left-arm spinner the other day, actually. Um, Scott Edwards, yeah, the 250s looks, uh, you know, a decent enough player. But I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're massively outclassed, aren't they? I mean, the interesting thing will be on, Wednesday, if they decide to um, play on the same pitch again, you know, which will which will have been what six seven days old, I suppose, and that might give them a chance. You know, you, you run the risk of of not scoring very many runs yourself and and losing the game. But if they play on an, on on another fresh one, which was which has always been the plan, um, then you just wonder if England might make five hundred. You know, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because they don't get to. They don't get to host international cricket with the eyes of the world on them that often. So on the one hand, they want to show that they're capable of producing international standard tracks. But if you give England the best pitch in the world, they're going to score a lot of runs and Netherlands are unlikely to be able to overcome that. Whereas if they have a slightly stodgier surface, that's probably their best chance of actually getting a result. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, the, the wickets they took in the in the run chase 
um, you know, that slowed England down on um, on Sunday were, you know, due to the fact that the pitch had dried out quite a bit and there was there was a little bit of turn happening. So, um, you know, you it, it gives you a chance. Um, that is for sure. But no, look, it's it, I think it's been terrific. You know, the, the the surface was a belter on day one. It was still pretty good on the, on the second game. Um, the welcome that, you know, the fans received and whatever, albeit, like I said, they were a little bit sort of undermanned and underpowered on, on uh, day one, but they rectified that on day two. Um, yeah, I think it's been it's been pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, you alluded to the chaos off the pitch in the first game, but on the pitch there was chaos as well. Butler's innings was was absurd. He, he pretty much broke every record there is to break. Tim Wigmore of The Telegraph wrote that since the start of 2015, Butler only faces on average 23 balls per game. Do you think he bats too low in ODI cricket? I mean, the move up to the order in T20 cricket that was basically based on the logic of let's give your best bat the most balls has worked and then some. Can you see England in their kind of next phase of their white ball regeneration looking to do that in the ODI game as well? Um, well I suppose it's, it's, it's certainly tempting. You know, everyone was trying to, was dying for Darren Milan to get out on, on, <laughs> on the Friday, um, which is no reflection on the way that he played. Uh, but simply because, you know, you knew there were, there were more brutal hitters to come, i.e. Liam Livingston, etc. Um, look, I, I think England will probably talk about it, but, but don't forget, if you're playing against South Africa or Australia, you're you're not, you know, with all due respect, you haven't got Logan Van Bake and, and people like that. You know, you've got Kagiso Rabada running in at you. You you might want you might want to hold Joss back a little bit. Um and fifty overs is a very, very long time. So look, in, in these circumstances you can understand why that's a, that sounds like a tempting thought, because um you're unlikely to kind of be three or four down um due to some wildly good pace bowling in the in the power plays but um i think under normal circumstances that you would probably keep it similar and you know he just came in at four didn't he on the on the friday um having you know he'd probably be in you know i don't know down to come in at well anywhere four five or six and the key the key to england's success in all white ball formats is the fact that they kind of they're flexible enough to change things when the game situation requires it. And so, you know, I, I imagine that's probably what they'll still do. Mm, it's almost as if he comes in after a set number of overs rather than in a set batting position. Obviously, there aren't a huge number of talking points in this series. and But the one that is kind of emerging, even if it's confected a little bit, is Owen Morgan's form. What do you see his ODI future looking like? Because a few weeks ago, he said that he's not committing to the 2023 World Cup just yet. He's not playing back-to-back last games because of his body and he's not in great nick you know over quite a few t20 tournaments and when everyone's back he's probably keeping Liam Livingston out of the ODI side he'll be 37 when the World Cup starts do you see his ODI captaincy surviving that long uh no frankly um I'm actually I'm a bit surprised And, and look I'm sure Owen being Owen that he's kind of thought about this and has thought about the um you know the succession plan Prior to that 2023 World Cup, um, it would be extraordinary if he hadn't, you know, he hadn't got some sort of idea in place as to how the whole thing is going to work. And that, you know, we're just waiting to hear what that is. Um, But yeah, I I can't see it, honestly, because Liam Livingston needs to be in that side. Um, And the strength of of striking power around around that, that squad um, just means that there, you know there just isn't room for somebody just to be captain of the side. It doesn't matter how good that captain is, um, and I'm guessing that the part of Owen's 
thoughts on all of this will be that you know Joss Joss will be ready to take over when you know we've spoken about this and and Joss is ready we've kind of got it in place I would be staggered if he if he tries to make it through to the 2023 World Cup and that's not because of two ducks against the Netherlands I mean frankly who cares um you know that that doesn't that doesn't matter but I just think it's a I I was surprised that he didn't announce that he was done with it after they won in 2019 and we're now three years after that um and he's still going so Look, he'll probably prove us all wrong and, um, you know, get, come back, great fitness, have an extraordinary run of form and lead, lead the side in the next one. But at the moment, that looks like a, a wild fantasy, doesn't it? And then on the bowling front, what do you make of Brian Cars as an international cricketer? He bowls a good pace. You know, he, he touches 90 miles per hour every now and again and with a lot of injuries, a possible test cricketer as well. Yeah, um, he's, uh, the timing of his sort of recovery from injury has been good for him um, and for England. And yeah, I mean, there's a role there for him, isn't there? There's the the obvious the obvious Plunkett um, comparison in terms of England's ability to take wickets in the middle overs, which they've you know actually they've struggled to do a little bit in this series against um, the Netherlands. So um, England will be very keen to sort of bring him along in that role and give him as much time to to bed himself in and to to get used to the to the skill set and the you know, and, and work out the plan in his head as to how he's going to do what Liam Plunkett did, you know, which was lots of changes of pace, lots of short balls, um, you know, and be a real wicket-taking force for England in those middle overs. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a spot there for him if he can crack it. So, um, timely for him. And he's got he's got a lot of great attributes. You know, his run-up is really smooth. He's a really big, strong guy. Um, and he will, and I think he'll get quicker as well. He'll be able to generate more pace than, uh, than we're seeing in sporadic, um, bursts at the moment so yeah I mean the, the world's his oyster really in terms of that white ball side On the test stuff as well a bowler not that dissimilar to cast is Jamie Overton who's in the England squad uh, test squad for the first time for the Leeds test he's an exciting pick who's who's done brilliantly in the county championship this year He has yeah I mean it, was, it wasn't so long ago that that Jamie Overton was kind of didn't know when to let the ball go you know he was bowling multiple sort of over waist high full tosses in, in, in blast games. He wasn't getting much of a run out for Surrey in, in anything else. Um and, you know, he he's he's worked very closely with Azam Mahmood, as is the, the bowling coach down there at the Oval. Has has got him got his action in, in great shape. Um and, and he's sort of delivering on a promise that, that, you know, people were talking about him as a potential England player five, six years ago now. Um, because he's got genuine genuine pace, you know, big strong guy and genuinely can get the ball down there so wonderful that he's he's making a resurgence when i when did i speak to Azar about this probably april wasn't it something like that after after a a, a pretty eye-catching performance in one of surrey's um wins at the oval it might even have been against somerset or Ham, hampshire anyway it doesn't matter um and you know he said really happy with his progress but he's not quite you know he's not quite bedded in yet you know um and perhaps now six weeks later that 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 is the case i'm sure that Rob Key, Rob Key knows Asma move very well. Obviously, they they captained him when he was at, at Kent in that spell. I'm sure they will have spoken, and if uh, and if they think it's a it, it's a good plan, then great to get him back in the fold. So um, yeah, great. I mean, it's 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 a really good story because um, you know too often, I think, uh, young bowlers or young fast bowlers, they kind of you know if 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 the early promises doesn't get doesn't get fulfilled. Then they kind of, you know, they they end up sort of drifting out of the drifting out of the game altogether. So good story that a that a, a man now. How how old is he now? Twenty eight. Be what 
28, yeah. I mean, he's coming into the prime of his career. So, you know, a, a young man who's had a he's had a bit of a blip, um, is 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 finding himself back in there again and has that drive and hunger to improve and, um, you know, to try and to try and win a Test match cap. Brilliant. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ben, how do you see Owen Morgan's England career going from here? We're recording this during the final Netherlands ODI, which Morgan is missing through injury. It's not just the form, the, the odd double failure happens, it's his fitness as well. And with ODI cricket in particular, that World Cup is still quite far away. Yeah, I suppose there's a few things to say. Because as you say, the form in T20, in T20 cricket, his form has been just uniformly bad for quite a long time. But the question seems more around the ODI captaincy. And in that, he's only played five 50 over games since the start of last year so and in one of those yeah match winning 75 not out so it's harder to say what his form is in that and the fitness thing again can only be figured out by playing it my instinct is and I think it's right if it's happens that Morgan will and should give himself July basically England played 12 games in July against Africa and India uh six ODIs and six T20s um if he if he and England struggle and his fitness isn't what it should be then that could be the time. Uh, but if he gets himself back into form, I think that upside is bigger than the downside of not giving Joss Butler six or 12 games as, as England captain and Liam Livingston six more games in middle order. Uh, and I think he has earned the right to know for absolute certain that he's got nothing left to give, I think. So I think that's will be the key time. I think these games really will be won't have too much sway either way in the decision and that'll be the the crunch moment I think. Ben Stokes announced this morning that Jamie Overton will be making his debut at Headingley. It's nine years after he was first named in an England squad. He's now 28. Phil we've talked to him about him a couple of times this summer but what should we expect from Overton in the test arena? I think it's it's good news for England that uh, it's not good news that Anderson is injured of course. So that's a concern by the way because it's you know it's a pattern that is developing a bit with, with Jimmy. Uh, but anyway, we'll come to that another time. Um, what can you expect from Overton? Um, pace and aggression, and they don't—they haven't fielded a bowler with that those traits in the, the first two Test matches. Uh, obviously, in this new new gung ho approach, this is exactly what they're going to need. You know, um, you can't go into a Test match under these two blokes uh, and have a you know a kind of pea shooter attack, albeit. A storied one, of course. So that's what you'll get. He's gonna—he's not just going to be the enforcer, although that will be part of his role. Um, Taha wrote a good piece on the website yesterday. He spoke to Gareth Batty about him, obviously his coach at Surrey, and they've been trying to drill home to him that he's—he's he's more than 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 a explore the middle of the pitch, stick two men out on a short leg type bowler. There is more to him than that, and I've watched a lot of him this year, uh, and that's exactly what. I've seen as well that he's bowled telling spells uh, in the midst of a game with a ball that's 40, 40, 50 overs old. And that's what Pace can do. And he has bowled full from time to time. And he's got the ball swinging late here and there. Um, the, the ball of the year so far from a seamer 
that I've seen was his ball to Matt Renshaw in the Somerset game back in early May, maybe late April, early May. But it was a sunny day and it was at the Oval, so where it doesn't do that much in the air. It wasn't like it was up at Headingley, you know. Um, and it's just arced massively back into the left-hander from right arm over. Uh, it's dream delivery. Renshaw leaves it as you would and it cleans him up, takes his off stump out of the ground. So he has that. Uh, he's he's a transformed quick who was really struggling at Surrey when he made the move up from Somerset. As a Mahmood got hold of him at the start of the summer, he's the bowling coach at Surrey, and and he said Mahmood said to Batty, "Give me give me some time with him, and I'll I'll, I'll get him right. I'll get him right for you." Uh, and that's what's happened. He's you know he has a different run up, so he's now accelerating through the crease properly. He's not trying to force it down there and he's bowling within himself 80%, 85% and yet still getting it up around that kind of number MPH as well. He can break 90 mile an hour and, and that's been confirmed by the ECB's ball tracking technology or whatever, ball, ball speed data that they, they've been trialling at certain county games. Uh, but the naked eye tells you that. There's a really good quote from Ben Compton early in the season. I think it was to the Times. He, he said that Jamie Overton was... I mean, Ben Compton has faced, by the way, more balls than anyone else has in the country this summer. And he said that Jamie Overton was felt 10 miles per hour quicker off the pitch than any other bowler he'd faced all year. And he faced some very good bowlers up to that point. So Jamie Overton is genuinely quick. I don't think he's Archer Stone Wood level quick, but he is right up there, high 80s, early 90s. Yeah, and it's worth saying as well that this, this, it's kind of come from nowhere a bit in that Overton wasn't massively in the conversation at the start of the summer after he struggled last year. But up in that, that move to Surrey was kind of seen as almost like the last thing he needed to check off, come here and on a flatter pitch, show that he could do it on that as well. Before that, his record, I think because he, he was rarely playing 14 games a season, so he wasn't putting up loads and loads of wickets. But actually, for four or five years, he was averaging like low to mid-20s in the ball. He came really close to a test call-up. It's basically a toss-up between him and Ollie Stone at the end of the 2018 summer when England wanted out and out quick. These were the two guys. Both had had extraordinary records that summer and they just went with Ollie Stone. So although this has come, and obviously he's been talked about a bit, this has come quite quickly from this point, but also it's not that surprising that once it's clicked, England got him in quite quickly because there's clearly quite a lot to like. And he can bat as well, by the way. Yeah. You know, he's averaging 50-odd, I think. And that's improved, actually. That's improved in, in a way almost more than his bowling, I think, even though that's what's wonderful. Yeah, and, and he, gives it a, he gives it a whack. And again, that will appeal to them because, you know, they don't have a, a number eight and he could potentially grow into that role. He's got the ball striking ability to be like an eight and a half at the moment, but with a bit of experience at test level, you never know, could become an eight, which is obviously something that they're crying out for. And it's it's not a like-for-like like replacement at all. The closest thing to a like-for-like like replacement would be picking his brother Craig. Yeah. Um, and also, it's, it's not a selection without risk. Jamie Oden, as you say, the run-up's only been remodelled this summer. He has always been a bowler who who does go at more than three and over generally. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, he, and he, he, got, bowls, he bowls hitable balls. And, and you've got Matthew Potts, who's only going to be playing his third test match as well. So it's it's another bold selection from, from McCullum it, and Stoke. It, it is, but from what you've seen from Potts, even though he had a trickier second test, he hits his lines and he hits his lengths pretty consistently, Potts. So I think you can you can go in there with a degree of confidence that he's not going to get kind of hit out the attack. Overton, you're right. I've seen him, as I said earlier, I've seen him bowl a lot. So I have seen him bowl not so well. I've seen him look for swing and over pitch quite a lot. And, and when you're bowling at real pace, then you do, it flies off the bat as we know. So, uh, but I don't think they're going to be bothered. I don't think they're going to be bothered about a bowler that's going to go at four and a half and over. If you end up with three for a hundred from 20 overs, 
Stokes and McCullum will say thanks very much. And, it's, and especially because even though England have won the last two test matches, there have actually been two very long spells, one in each of those test matches, where England haven't really looked that penetrative and have looked quite short on ideas. So it's quite proactive that even in victory, England are looking at this early stage in the McCullum area to, to go on and improve. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you say it's you can't just look at pure averages and pure economy rates, like the impact of wickets and when a guy bowling will go a long way to how valuable they've actually been and Jamie Overton could be that they'd say point of difference a lot don't they he could be that point of difference bowler David Stump asks we're currently in a sweet is that his real name I don't know right okay stage name <laughs> for a cricket lover. David Stump asks we're currently in a sweet spot of a resurgent England nice weather and before all the infighting and culture wars kick <laughs> off with 100 the best few weeks of cricket in a long long time in this country question mark yeah good point that uh, it, has, it has been nice. <laughs> it has been lovely. The, the weather's obviously helping us. Uh, there's been... I've been impressed with the county stuff that I've seen and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, um, the the clouds are over the horizon for sure and he's bang on there. And culture wars might be the, the phrase of the day but it absolutely applies in cricket just as it applies in, in all other walks of life at the moment. Yeah, we are... It's not going to always feel like this, and quite soon it's not going to feel like this. But at the moment, uh, considering what cricket went through towards the back end of last year, um, with the explosion at Yorkshire, the necessary explosion at Yorkshire, and the necessary, you know, internal uh, assessment of its of its soul, if you like, you know, it's badly phrased, but you know what I mean. And then, obviously, a stinker of a winter and. And harrowing to watch Joe Root, you know, denuded of his team and no self-belief left and just staggering out of that. Considering where you were then, it's been a kind of rousing couple of months for the game. And I totally agree with him there. Totally see where he's coming from. I hope, I really, really hope that the 100 goes off well. Um, It doesn't win or negate any arguments and those arguments will continue to run. Um, and there are glimpses of the impact that we, you know, the fact that there are f- minimal games on Sky, for example, of, of of the blast, which wouldn't have played out in previous years. You know, this is another of these kind of unintended consequences, or maybe some would say intended consequences. Uh, I just hope the 100 goes off well. I hope that there's some good games. I hope that the crowds come out as they did last time. From what I've heard, the ticket sales are very good. Obviously, that's another culture war, the cost, as we've discussed before. Uh, I really hope that it goes off well. Uh, as I say, that doesn't um, silence or uh, embolden one side or the other, but it, cricket needs a good summer. It needs a good India test match, for example. You know, I'm quite looking forward to that game, by the way. I think it could end up being a classic one-off game that bizarrely becomes more memorable for the fact that it's a singular thing on, it, mm. on its own terms. And it's only pretty much end of next week as well yeah I know comes thick and fast all this stuff um, but it's it's a really lovely was it a tweet or was uh, it an yeah, email yeah, yeah it's, it's a beauty by, by David that We're, we are about to enter what like 14 days of consecutive test cricket or 13 days I think of consecutive test cricket that'd be pretty fun yeah <laughs> and on that the big news in the women's game this week is that Catherine Brunt has announced her retirement from the test game in a retirement statement Brunt said 
I feel like as an athlete, there is never an obvious time to step away from doing the thing that you love. But over the past two years, thoughts of retirement have surfaced more and more. So I've decided to make a smart decision rather than an emotional one. Test cricket is my absolute passion and to retire from this format was truly a heartbreaking choice to make. But it allows me to prioritise white ball cricket. Bron is just one of two women who played test cricket this century to have taken more than 50 test wickets. Uh, she averages less than 20 against Australia and less than 16 in Australia. In her last test match, she took eight wickets in that amazing game at Canberra earlier this year, where England nearly chased down 260 from 48 overs in the final day. Uh, ben, a brilliant test career, but with Bron and Shrobsall no longer available in test cricket, those are two very senior players who will be difficult to replace for the South Africa test that starts on Monday at Taunton. Yeah, well, it's it's a massively new squad because it's not just in the pace department that's going to be changes. There's a, From looking at the squad, it looks like, I mean, they've only really got five batters in there who have played test cricket. So you'd expect Emma Lamb to come in and probably open so everyone keep the position that they've done, which will be an ask for her, but she's a very exciting player. I'll be interested to see. And then even then, probably it'll be Alice Davison-Richards, I think, at number seven. So you'll have two new players in that top seven even before you get to that pace attack. Um, and then it might just be that it's one of the new quicks that plays and that Kate Cross is sort of the experienced head in the side. But then also they might think that sort of height is the way to go because they have struggled to take 20 wickets in test matches and it might be that they want that, that height as well as sort of pace and, and seam up and skill. So then and it's stuff. Lauren Bell. Lauren Bell and, and probably Emily Arla as well. He's, he's pretty tall She's as well. She's in the squad as well. Yeah. 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 Um, and Freya Davis is the other, uh, the other quick in there. So I'd say, I'd say that the bowling attack could go one of a few ways, really, because they that's if they play both spinners, which they probably will because Exxon's the best bowler in the world and Charlie Dean, they see as a, a wicket-taking threat. But they might also get to the pitch. I mean, it's a taunt as well, so maybe that'll turn, but they might get to it and actually think, actually, this looks quite green. We only need one spinner. And then all of a sudden, all three of the new quicks are playing. So mm. that's, that's where the question is, I think. I think Lauren Bell's maybe half a step ahead of Emily Arlett. Uh, she's been groomed for a while now to to take over that new ball slot. Uh, she's tall. She's got pace. She's got a really good action. So, yeah, look, it, it, it's it's the right time for Catherine to, to move aside in the four-day stuff. For yeah, sure. it was quite, quite interesting. Lisa Kitely, the England coach, gave a press conference the other day and she's basically saying that at Brunt's age and with a lack of cricket under a belt, it was just a risk for her playing the test match. Yeah. And with the summer, busy summer ahead, with the Commonwealth Games, which is prioritising yeah. it was just what they saw as a risk yeah. that was a little I, I imagine she'll be on the commentary team um, and she's a scream so that'd be great fun she's going to be a great commentator once she she, she knocks it all on the head um, there was no place for Lauren Winfield Hill in that squad um, but she was included in an A squad who are currently playing South Africa in a three-day warm-up game, as well as some of the centrally contracted players who missed out on the test squad. There are some very young players in there, I think five or six teenagers. So a very good opportunity to take a look how they get on in Red Bull cricket, because obviously there aren't that many opportunities, if any, for young players to play Red Bull cricket in the women's game at the moment. On the first game of that, Sarah Glenn took Pfeiffer. Who's, who's opening with, with Beaumont? Uh, Emma Lamb. Is that confirmed? Uh, not confirmed, not, but from looking at the squad, yeah. it seems like pretty much yeah. the option. Yeah. Okay, I so. uh, moving on to the county game. A bit, let's start with a bit of transfer news. Uh, this morning, Lancashire announced the signing of India all-rounder Washington Sundar. That'll do wonders for the streaming numbers, I'm sure. He'll be available for the whole Royal London One Day Cup campaign, as well as some of the rounds of the county championship, depending on how successful his injury recovery is. Um, I'll tell you what, it's a really good signing. If they, <laughs> really if they, not just for, you know, your 
cheeky sardonic lines, uh, which are fair, obviously. There's, there's, there'll be a, an element of that, but I mean, he's a quality cricketer. And Old Trafford in mid to late summer, uh, if he can, if they can get him in a white shirt for three games, that could be critically important for him. I'm intrigued to see how he, what he actually does in Red Bull cricket, because he's not played that much first class cricket because he's been injured, and then before that, COVID wiped out the previous Randy Trophy season and he's probably batted better than he's bowled in test cricket and he has opened the batting I think in Indian first class cricket when he was a teenager he so, made a stunning 60 odd didn't he yeah. against Australia maybe on his debut yeah. I think it was so I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if he like opens the batting and is a second spinner alongside really Parkinson good signing. so really yeah good signing. And, and also Lancashire have got that history with overseas that once they get them early they do tend to hang around you know obviously Wazim but Murali came coming back as well and it's a really, really good shout, that. They're, they're doing a lot of things right, Lanks. And after Hassan Ali earlier in the summer as well, that's a seriously good pair of OC signing. Moving to Yorkshire, David Willey and Tom Kohler Cadmore have announced that they're leaving Yorkshire at the end of this season. Willey is returning to North Ants, while Kohler Cadmore is heading off to Somerset. Um, not going to lie, I found the David Willey departure statement slightly jarring. I was quite a little bit from it. He said that the cricket and the current players seems to be secondary at the moment to repairing the club's reputation. It certainly felt that way for me over the past 12 months. Um, yeah, I'm just not, I'm not quite sure how a player can say that given all the stuff that's happened in the last 12 months, that that should have not been addressed in the way it has done. Um, and I'm also not quite sure on the practical consequences of addressing Yorkshire's recent historical problems with racism what that practical effect is on the players in the dressing room yeah I mean I absolutely agree that it's a jarring statement um and that it's one of those things that even if there is like a motivation it's understandable it's kind of best kept behind closed doors I think part of the reason that he made the statement was that he felt that Yorkshire had misrepresented his reasons for leaving in their release so his release went in quotes in the North Hampshire release <laughs> said that uh, he's, he had a statement saying um that you know, the right time to return home, that sort of thing. It was very sort of, uh, you know, straightforward thing. Yorkshire's statement from Darren Goff said that North Ants uh, had given him a contract offer that they couldn't match. And I think Willie wanted to, partly to head off the impression that he was just leaving for more money, basically, that this was, a, a, you know, a selfish decision rather than something that was right for him for lots of other reasons. Um, I mean, you're, you're right that, if you know, Yorkshire, it, firstly, it does seem odd that the two would have to, come into conflict you know the sorting out the off-field stuff and keeping the on-field progress going uh that shouldn't have to be the case um and if it even if it is the case that would still be that wouldn't mean it wasn't the right thing to do they should take you know a few seasons of bad results if it means they can continue to exist as a club which is what the the stakes are basically um but then from a player's point of view and as I say this should stay behind closed doors it shouldn't be something that should be aired in public but if you are a player with a short professional career and you feel that the club you're at isn't doing the best to maximise that, uh, then it would make sense to seek opportunities elsewhere, I guess. I think one of the things that I saw reported somewhere was that the Yorkshire basically came to the table late in the contract talks with Willie, that that, that basically slipped down the priority order. And you can I can see how, as a player, that makes you feel undervalued, even if that's all for slightly, for, for, for completely legitimate reasons. And, uh, and there is a bigger picture here I'll see that as a professional sports person, perhaps you have to feel uh, a certain amount of selfishness at certain points to go to clubs. Uh, as I say, mm. jarring statement, completely agree. But Very nuanced view. On to the blast. 
Sorry is still unbeaten. They beat Somerset in a kind of odd thriller at the Oval last night. They won it off the last ball. Peter Siddle took two and two in the last over before Conor McCurr hit the last ball for four. There was an amazing moment when um, Gus Atkinson got bowled off the penultimate ball of the game. He tried to play uh, off stump York. He tried to guide it down to third man for four, missed it. Will Jacks was unbeaten at the other end and he goes crazy, like jumps up and down like a um, like an angry toddler and then walks off to a standing ovation when McCoy had the winning It's a club that's forgotten how to lose. Yeah, it's crazy. So they won that game without Pollard, who's out um, for, for the, the rest of the past. the tournament, yeah. Uh, Pope, Jamie Overton, Curran, Curran, Roy, Topley, and I'm probably forgetting a couple as well. So for them to keep winning uh, with that calibre of players out is, is seriously impressive. My moment of the week is from the blast. I was watching the end of the Darvish and North Ants game yesterday and uh, they chased down 187 with ease. Um, so Darvish in the last week have now beaten Yorkshire, Birmingham and North Ants back to back to go second in the North group. And Middlesex in the four-day stuff... Yeah, you, you wanted to talk about that last week. I so did, yeah. We did. This we is ran a chance. Time, this is we? your chance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Christ, I can't remember what happened in the game now. <laughs> it was a four-wicket win, but again, Middlesex flying high uh, and to, to win a, a tight one, um, it just shows what 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 Mickey A is doing, and it's it's rousing stuff. It really is, you know. It, it, anybody who looks at the at the the carve up of the county game. Um, can't fail to be to be moved and thrilled when one of the perennial uh, kind of shorthand fail, shorthand for failures, isn't it? You know, Derbyshire, Leicestershire. How many get, how many players have they produced? For blah blah blah. All that stuff. Well, it's amazing what what you can do with a couple of good acquisitions um, and a coach that can just genuinely imbue a little bit of self belief into some players. And they've 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 got some good ones. You know, I don't know how you pronounce his name. Is it Deploy? Yeah, Louis Louis Deploy. Yeah, near enough. Um, he's having an absolute stormer, you know. Yeah. He, I think he beat Yorkshire basically on his own. I think they needed 19 off the last, and he and he did it in five balls. Uh, and he, he's, I, he was not out in the Northants game at the death as well, wasn't he? So these kind of players that whose names percolate around the game without really having too much of an identity, they are suddenly beginning to perform regularly. Oh, and, Wade Manson is it's in the cricketers' who's who when you right. ask who's got the best shot in the game, and half the country comes back with Wade. Not even one Wade Manson shot. It's five or six different. Yeah, Wade and he made shots. what seventy odd in thirty balls yeah. last night. Yeah, yeah. So it's great, and obviously Sean Masood is you know we get to nod every week on the show, and he's been the player of the and, year, and also pod favourite Mark Watt going going at under eight um, again. He's having a very good summer, and on deploy, uh, he is one of the few players in the world with a proper signature shot in that he yeah. plays the scoop shot like no one else. He does it with the back of his bat. He puts it puts back backwards and then ramps it over the keeper that way. But I checked. Uh, pioneered he's, by he's, Andrew he's... Simons there. By okay. the way. I, I checked, he he does it deliberately. So mm. you can watch it once or twice and think, oh, he's just kind of mis, mistimed it and he's he's made it up on the spot. But he does actually practice that. And also, to feel on, on your point as well, it's it's quite heartening looking at that North Group table. I mean, you can come to a conclusion when you see Surrey nine from nine, essentially in the South Group, that the, the rich clubs are dominating the blast. But if you look at the North Group table at the moment, you've got Derbyshire in second, North Ants in third, Leicestershire in fifth, uh, Yorkshire in six, Knotts with a star-studded T20 side, struggling in seventh place with just three wins from ten. Um, I mean, one of the one of the stories of the blast, I guess, is is seventeen-year-old leg spinner Rahan Ahmed, who's suddenly become a mainstay in that Leicester side after impressing the under-19 World Cup. He took four for twenty-two the other day, and a couple of massive googlies did serious numbers 
online. So it's been a, it's been a really, really good and exciting blast campaign. And to be honest, Surrey are through in the South group. Lancashire are doing well in the North group. But other than that, it's kind of all to play for with maybe like Worcestershire, Durham, um, Sussex and Kent basically out of the running. The rest of them are um, Friday night blast. Did you watch watch any of it? Yes. Um, I watched some of your, your show with Dan Norcross. Do you want to explain what it is? So, so Phil, listeners, is is uh, part of this new. I guess it's Soccer Saturday for the Blast, basically Friday Night Blast. Cricket's Jeff Stelling, um, yeah. and you're you're well, Red, Chris Red, Kamara to Dan. Yeah, if you like, Jeff, if you Jeff like, Stelling. Red Zone, the American football version is probably a better comparison because you do have the footage and you can go to the commentary from each game. But yeah, we had uh, we had a little studio at Lords, an otherwise empty Lords, uh, but the Wi-Fi is good. And we had eight screens and a master screen and a little screen of us two, Herberts, as well. And we did our best over the course of over four hours to bring as much of the action as possible uh, to the punters and to to move from one game to the other. And, you know, there's been a there's been a leg by at Wantage Road, Dan. And, and obviously you can't cover every single wicket, especially down the pipe when things are going berserk in, in each game. But... Uh, for a for, for a trial run, in effect, you know, it was soft launched a couple of weeks before that, and Mark Church and uh, and Matt Floyd did it, formerly of Sky, uh, and then it was launched a bit more on Friday night. And while there will be some teething problems with it, I suppose, and a couple of the feeds uh, weren't quite as strong as others, which we've seen as well. And but this is an emerging new media for cricket. Uh, we haven't fully nailed it yet but the fact is that this wouldn't have been possible a couple of years ago or even last year but the, the counties are, are moving moving along the line uh, and while me and Norcross staggered out not for the first time on a Friday night in fairness but we staggered out knackered at the end of it, uh, it it was it was a good thing to be a part of and hopefully you know it can it can grow from here and become a relatively regular staple of people's people's yeah. cricket in it, you know because because the, the Blast needs it, right? It, it needs that kind of context, I think. And our long-standing criticism of the Blast is that it's impossible to follow and this does make it, when you've got, what, seven or eight games happening on a Friday night, it does make it Did, did you watchable. think it worked, to be honest? Yeah, no, genuinely, it does. It does. Well, one thing that I think will just get better over time is like the snappiness between games and stuff like that. That will surely just get better over time. Yeah, but yeah. That, so so there, there, there were technicians running in and out yeah, constantly yeah. and fiddling with wires while me and Norcross just spoke, spouted. Norcross uh, fiddling with your mic as you spoke. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. I was, you watched it right at the end. Blimey, so some people were still watching after 10 o'clock. Wow. Chris asks, should there be squad limits on county squads? The size of Surrey's, Lancashire, Warwickshire's, etc. is huge compared to the smallest counties. I basically think no, because the bigger teams uh, with more international players lose those international players. And you look at Surrey at the moment, they've got so many players missing. They, they had to give a debut yesterday to young Nico Reefer. That was his first T20 game. So you, they do need squad sizes that big, I guess. Yeah, and there is a salary cap, even though some of the smaller counties don't really get near it. But that there is that in place well to sort of check the you know the, the rampant ambition of, of your Surreys and your Lancashire's and whoever. We've got a question in from, and his username is important here, by the way, at Cornwall Morris asks there's constant chat about possibly losing a few counties from <laughs> the professional game but if you had to add one to the current group of 18 which county would you pick any reason is valid 
Phil, you had an answer straight away when we talked about this before the show. Well, I don't know if it stands up, but Berkshire are the dominant team. And I, I, they've won three out the last four. It. No, I checked it. They've won three out the last four. Right, okay. Uh, and I met a bloke actually at Lords uh, who's closely involved in the Derbyshire, in the Berkshire sort of cricket association, if you like. And, and he was saying that there's immense... Uh, kind of natural resources if you like you know there's a there's a lot of real interest in the game throughout the the county and obviously there's kind of built up areas as well sort of around reading and so on that that, that would benefit from uh from the club from, from the county becoming first class and that's what happened with durham they just became so good and so dominant um that it became this sort of unstoppable train if you like uh i don't know enough about berkshire to be sure on that geographically Mor- Cornwall Morris is is bang on because you know we we could certainly do with with another focal point down there right in the in the in the deep west. Mm. I mean D- Devon Cornwall obviously but Devon Devon are producing a lot of good players at the moment the Overton Twins Don Bess etc. Yeah. Well that that's that's the other and it's a hotbed for cricket down. Mm. That, that's the other argument I suppose that Berkshire might have the best record but if all the players who were born in Devon played for Devon they would be I think a, a very very a, a pretty strong team and there is a a Devon and Cornwall to Somerset pipeline a bit, and you wonder if there could be a Devon and Cornwall nineteenth. I originally misread this and thought it was a if you had to lose one for any sort of spurious reason, uh, who would you lose? And I had to go for for Leicestershire, not for the normal reasons, but because if you want Americans get into cricket, you can't have a team they're going to pronounce Leicestershire. So edit, edit that out. <laughs> Elsewhere in the international game, Chris Silver's Sri Lanka have beaten Australia in an ODI series. Ben, he's had a really good start to his time in charge. Sri Lanka beat Bangladesh in a test series in Bangladesh, which not many teams do. And this is a strong Australia side. And Sri Lanka, as we've been talking about before on the show, have a pretty poor recent record in ODI cricket. Yeah. Uh, and that, that Bangladesh series was kind of the, the Silverwood template, template of, you know, batting big. And he's talked about the, the first 12 balls being key for a bowler. All very sort of obvious things, but also the right things to focus on, I guess, especially if you're a side who are looking to improve quickly from quite a low bar uh, and yeah that, that this Australia series has been has been great after seeming like it could be a massive blowout I mean the first game Australia won it by 10 wickets uh, in the T20s uh, and then since then it's been it's been close all the way through I mean they've kind of traded blows um, but Sri Lanka have been the better side by a margin since then um, the the game that's almost most worth mentioning is the third T20i which was just ridiculous um, so Dastan, is that the mad finish? Yeah, so Dustin Shanik is the captain with six off 12 balls at the time. Uh, Sri Lanka needed 59 off the last three. And then Australia brought on Josh Hayeswood to bowl. He's basically unhittable at the moment. Uh, and then he just he just took off and they <laughs> won it with a ball to spare. He ended up 54 of 25, I think. So that would be, what, 49 off his last 13 balls. Uh, apparently the most runs ever hit off the last three overs of the T20 to win it. So that was ridiculous. But then it's kind of been, that was freakish, I suppose. What's been encouraging is that since then it's been... Sustainable. Uh, exactly, yeah. And contributions from lots of different players. And as you say, young players, like yeah, As- Asalanka, Pathan has made 100. Uh, Wanindu Hasaranga is still young and one of the best white ball rounds in the world at the moment, really, considering that you don't get many people who can bowl leg spin and hit sixes in the way that he can. Uh, Kulsa Mendes isn't quite so young, but you'd really fancy him to have like sort of three golden years. I, I was, was going to mention him because he got a run of all 80-odd in one of the games, I noticed. And you, with him, you never know if he's going to be in the side or not, but he's got you know a lot of natural ability and he was really 
highly thought of a few years back and had a kind of stinker of a run, had a couple of injuries as well. So to have him back, I think he was batting three there as well in that game. And yeah, it, it, I'm really pleased for Silverwood. Good man. Brute of a job with England. Um, it, you know, Atherton wrote he was out of his depth. I think there was a sort of, you know, unavoidable element of truth to that statement. That said, uh, his, as, as you say, Ben, you know, his philosophy, if you like, if you can combine that that those components that idea with a lot of natural ability that's maybe maybe not been focused too much in recent years then that becomes quite a, quite a useful combination and we've said on, about Sri Lanka before predating Silverwood we've said there's a lot of good young players coming through and they've got pace in the in their attack they're always going to produce watchable batters so yeah it would be really really good if they can come again and and they will because you know it's, it, they love the cricket out there and and I guess with Silverwood as well there's so much more than just being a cricket coach to being the England head coach, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Especially um, for him. I mean, well, firstly, he was being, he was selector. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, yeah, by the end, he was, you know, booking net times and doing all that kind of stuff. Like it was a, it was a shambles by the end. And I think he was basically doing seven jobs and wasn't very well suited to a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing that I think he, he might just be quite a good coach in and of itself is in he can take players and make them better players. I mean, and, you know, it's kind of is been almost written from history now but England were an improving side and actually quite a good side for the first 18 months he was in charge you know they won four series in a row two of them were away from home um, won it up in India yeah and, and with a young with a young team uh that looked like had the core or something and then obviously everything fell apart but that like if he can just focus on just having a group of players that he knows and can get to know him and the other stuff, then there's no reason why it can't be a good And it's not, good not that similar a job because, it, as we say, it's a, it's a young, it's a very young squad. I mean, one player we've not mentioned in the podcast before, Dunith Willalago, was one of the players of the Under-19 World Cup. He's been batting seven and bowling left arm spin. And then between him, uh, Hasaranga and Mahish Tikshana, you've got three very different, young, very good white ball spinners. So they've got the core of something that they can really take forward. Uh, unfortunately for Franca, that series is not part of the ODI World Cup Super League. So they're still um, in quite a lot of trouble in that. In India, South Africa drew two all in a T20I series against India. The decider was rained off. And in the Caribbean, West Indies are 1-0 up against Bangladesh. Kimar Roach taking a hatful of wickets there. Can we Cut just... And Kyle Mayers as well. Kyle Mayers took Nipping a Nipping in. Amazing. I Can we just say something about Kimar Roach? Just that, yeah. that, that, that five foot in the third innings came when it just looked like Bangladesh might put up a bit of a fight, set Western East 150 or something, and there could have been a bit of a dogfight at the end. Uh, so it was, a, it was a really important spell, and he's quietly just put up a record that kind of ranks among kind of a lot of Western East great bowlers. He's now. He, he went past he's, Marshall he's, or he's, No, he's joint with Holding. Right. Uh, so he's 10 wickets or so behind uh, Joel Garner. So he'll probably end up fourth among. West Indies quicks behind Marshall, uh, Walsh, and Ambrose, which is, which is, which is massive. I mean, mm. it's, with it's, an average, it's almost identical to Anderson as well. Yeah, and and the Anderson comparison is quite an interesting one because he um, and quite a relevant one because he started as a proper tearaway. I think if you remember in, in one of his first few series, he basically heralded the start of the end of Ponting's career when he troubled him with a short ball, broke his hand, I think, and it, it, that that was something that people then targeted Ponting with from then on. Uh, he is no longer a tearaway. He kind of had a bit of time in the wilderness, sort of rediscovered himself and reinvented himself as almost like an Anderson-like 
low 80s bowler, very consistent, lots of skills. Uh, and he has been the linchpin of that attack for a time when West Indies have really, really needed a linchpin. You wonder where, as much as they're at a, a low ebb at the moment, like where would they be without Kimar Roach? It kind of doesn't really bear thinking about. And it's a really exciting attack as well with Roach and you've got Seals and Joseph, who's been playing Test cricket for a while, but I don't haven't really seen him bowl with the kind of the accuracy that he had in that first Bangladesh Test match as well. So yeah, maybe England's defeat in the West Indies wasn't so bad after all. Here's a question from a listener, Sid. Long-time fan of the magazine, have loved it since his all-out cricket days, a precursor to Wizarding Cricket Monthly. I started reading it when I was eight or nine years old. I'm now 27. I that started... makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> and I started listening to the podcast about two years ago. I have uh, a question for the pod. If you have time, please could you discuss some interesting cricket books you've read this month? I know we have a section on books in the magazine, but some coverage on the podcast would be nice as well. There is but an assumption up, in love, that question. I love you, Sid. I love you, Sid. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for continuing to read, my man. There, there's quite a, a, a sweet assumption in that question that we read multiple cricket books a month. Um, I personally don't. The, the the most recent cricket book that I read was Cricketonomics that we talked about when Tim Wigmore came on the podcast a few weeks ago, which is, as I, I, I've said it then and I'll say it again now, is a brilliant and fascinating and almost essential read, I guess, if you want to understand the economics of the game at the moment. Um, but Phil, you wanted to talk about another book that is not yet out. Yeah, I did. It's good timing by Sid, um, uh, because I wanted to talk about this anyway at some point this month. Um, this is a book which I think is going to win lots of awards and I think it should win lots of awards. It's an, it's an extraordinary thing and it's called Being Jeffrey Boycott, right? Now, if anyone's read... Have you read The Damned United by David Peace? Do you know of it? I've watched the film. Okay, but, well, yeah. the, the book is is a, is a great bit of work and it The Damned United tells a story of Clough's 60-odd days at Leeds United in the early 70s and it's done as a kind of imagined historical fiction uh, getting inside Clough's mind and based obviously on a lot of texts from the time. Anyway, uh, this book has a similar kind of feel. However, it's a joint effort between John Hotton, one of the, the best cricket writers around, and Boycott himself. And it stemmed from the first lockdown, well, the, the first stage of the pandemic. Boycott decided on a whim to sit down and try and remember, and he does have an extraordinary me memory boycott, try and remember every one of the 108 test matches that he played, right? And remember the conversations that he had and the, 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 the hotels that they stayed in and the team talks and the, you know, the sort of mini machinations around the test match week and sitting by the radio waiting to hear if you're in the squad. And all of these details, the, the big and the small, he tried to put it down on page. Now, because this is Boycott, and because he has this extraordinary memory, and because he has this amazing dedication to what Hotton describes as the one love of his life, the true love of his life, which was playing cricket, he wrote and sent a Word document that landed uh, at my colleague's desk, Matt Thacker, who is the, uh, the, the chief publisher of Fairfield Books. Uh, the document came out at 111,877 words. 111,000. And Matt read it and thought it was amazing and then showed it to John Hotton, uh, who's always had an obsession with Boycott and has written very beautifully on Boycott for a WCM and various other publications. Hotton then got to know Boycott 
and they've developed some kind of friendship and have now collaborated on this book. And it is a first-hand account from Boycott of these 108 games and a second-hand account with Hotton's incisions, if you like. Um, and it comes out as, as this extraordinary combination of, of writerly brilliance in Hotton's hands and the license that you, you have, although, of course, he's done his research and he's spoken to Boycott and he's based a lot of Hotton's bits on what Boycott's written in the first place in that 111,000 words. And it, it's, it transposes Hotton's bits with Boycott's first-person account. So it's a, it's a really brilliant combination. I don't think I've ever seen... Certainly never in a cricket book have I seen this before. Um, I just want to kind of just read a little bit. Uh, this is This is Hotton doing boycott, if you like, Hotton talking to boycott. Uh, this is from an early chapter. You've just, from 1962, okay, and boycott's averaging 20-something for Yorkshire and he's struggling and he's a 22-year-old bloke in spectacles and he's... He's not test cricketer yet. Not a test cricketer, slightly socially awkward, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke. Uh, he's a man slightly out of place in that Yorkshire dressing room. Uh, this is Hotton. You have just finished breakfast at the Salisbury Hotel in Scarborough before the match against Warwickshire at North Marine Road when Brian Close, back from England duty, finds you and says he wants you to open the batting. No, thank you, Captain, you tell Brian Close. Well, you have a choice, Close says. You can either open the batting or not play. I've taken the decision to make you into an opening batsman because your technique, temperament and approach to batting fits it. Now go and do your best. You do. You always do. You finished the 1963 season third in the national batting averages. You've opened the batting for many teams, but you've never liked opening the batting. You do now. Close is right. It suits your game, that immaculate technique, and it suits your temperament. You like the certainty of knowing when you will bat and who you will face. You can prepare for certainties. You can structure a life around 11.30 a.m. on the first morning of a game. And that's just a bit of Hotton for you. And then it goes into Boycott's own... First person account. Mm. So you're constantly jumping back and forth. I know I've gone on about this. No, quite this, a long this, time, is, this, but, this is really interesting. But it's, it's a truly brilliant bit of work. It comes out in a few weeks' time. In fact, I think it comes out what, what, with the 20th. Yeah, it comes out next week. On June the 30th, it comes out. Uh, and Boycott will be up at Leeds signing copies and he'll be here and there around the course of the summer. Um, he's put his heart and soul into it. And I think it, it humanizes the bloke in a way that. Uh, will take many by surprise, I suppose. Uh, and for those who are sympathetic to, the, to the, the epicness of the boycott story, it will be an absolutely essential read. It's a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Let's try and get him, just, let's try and get him on the show to talk about it. Oh, I've, I've had words. <laughs> okay, excellent. Watch this space. Listeners, Ben's moment of the week is related to this quite long question. So bear that in mind as I read it out. This is from Shervo, who, if you don't remember, is our listener who's emailed in a few times in the past. He only discovered his love of cricket during Alistair Cook's farewell 100 at the Oval in 2018, and he's recently started playing the game. 
Jervo says, firstly, thought I'd follow up on my nascent cricket badgerdom after you helpfully sent me all those YouTube ideas last autumn. I've been playing a bit for the last few weeks, my score growing exponentially with each match, naught, then one, and then last week, two not out over several overs in what turned out to be the longest partnership of a lacklustre innings. It sounds like a small thing, but I was a nerdy kid growing up, so playing any kind of sport is something I've never really done before, and certainly not something I expected to start in my mid-30s. It's brought me a heck of a lot of joy so far this summer, got me out of the house, not to mention the great feeling of contributing to a team. I'm grateful to my long-suffering but patient teammates who endure my lacklustre batting and terrible fielding. Anyway, all of this has led me to realise it is a very difficult game to pick up as an adult if you've never played cricket before. So I wonder, what do the teams think can be done to get more adults into playing cricket recreationally, especially those who, like me, who didn't as youngsters? So much of the focus is on involving kids, which is great, but given the obvious mental and physical benefits of playing the game, could more attention be paid to helping older people take it up for the first time? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Ben, you didn't play cricket as a kid and you played cricket this Saturday. So first of all, what was your experience of doing that? Uh, Well, so this was my first cricket match for six years or so since we had a sort of a silly game out on the Oval. Um, And this was for also quite a silly game for Jim Wallace's uh, stag do. Uh, But it was, it was fun. I suppose if I had to pick a moment of the week from it, it would be Taha Hashim's whip through mid wicket sort of back leg in the air. Uh, he looks very good in a in a cricket jumper and with a collar pops. He had a furrowed brow, no helmet on, not a hair out of place. And crucially, it was photographed as well. Yes, he looked extraordinary. Uh, but it was, I mean, as I said, I've got no talent for cricket really, uh, no training. Um, but I had I had fun. Um, got to, I think one of the keys was that it was pairs cricket, and I wonder if this could be something that is actually in a way rolled out a bit more widely for people who are trying to get into it. Because if you want to go and play cricket no matter what level you are, you can kind of find a game to play. You'll be able to go and play a Sunday game for a village team who are desperate for an 11th player. The thing is, is that you might get to play but not be involved too much. Like if you, you know, you might get a bat, but you'll get out within the first few balls and then you might not get a bowl. If you do, you get an over and then they'll realise, you know, that you actually don't really know how and it's kind of hard to learn mid-game and that I don't know where, what training facilities there would even be for people to go and get training as an adult, as a beginner. Uh, but with the good thing with pairs cricket is you can have the rule set up so that if you get out, you lose runs, but you don't actually get out. So you can actually have fun doing something that is competitive, but without that thing that is what makes cricket great, which is, you know, the um, uh, the fact that one mistake can lead to, you know, your day being over and sort of thing, but also that does make it quite impenetrable for someone who is not as good as everyone else they're playing with. Um, so I don't really have a, have a solution and I don't think, you know, cricket is going to change its formats overnight, but that, that's the barrier I think basically. I, I think there's a really good answer I mean there's a reason why kids play pairs cricket at the start right and also I think you're also right that so often when you're getting into the game you're brought in as a ringer for a team that's playing 40 overs on a Sunday and that isn't exactly the most uh, welcoming format for someone who never played before I would actually recommend, if possible, if you're getting into the game, playing last man stands cricket. I was going to say that. If you're in an area that has a last man stands league. I've got a friend who, very similar to Shervo, only got into the game a slightly later, basically 2019 World Cup, uh, in his early to mid-20s. And he really wanted to start playing, played a little bit during lockdown. And uh, he now plays last man stands cricket, which is seven or eight aside it's eight aside eight aside uh you play it in a po- on an astro in a park 
Um, and you, it, it, you're still out when you're out, but the standard is lower, is not taken as seriously as club cricket is. Um, I think that's better and easier to get into. The games don't take too long. So if you've had a, if you, if you do get out quickly, you're not, you know, sitting there all day watching people is done and dusted within two hours. Um, I think that's worth doing. And, and I think also, I guess maybe taking the focus away from playing matches initially. I've got a friend who, again, is a guy who plays for our third eleven who only started playing during lockdown. He goes to the nets loads and he's actually pretty good for someone who only started playing in 2020. Um, yeah, so I think- it, it, t- it takes a bit of, bit of guts, I think, to walk into Definitely. a net, especially if you are starting from scratch or if you're looking to go again, if you like, having played a little bit when you were younger. But you will always find a welcome there. And if there's a few people playing in a net, they will, trust me, they will be happy to bring another person in, share the load. Uh, you know, and if you bowl for half hour, you'll get a bat for five or ten minutes. Uh, that's that's the etiquette of it all. So, so yeah, it, it, it can be a bit daunting for sure. Um, but, yeah, get in there and you will in, inevitably meet people. You'll talk to people. They will have Sunday games if you want to get involved from there on in. And look, I'm on various WhatsApp groups with sort of friendly friendly cricket clubs. You can have 55 names on that thing, but they're still struggling to get more than eight players on a Sunday. So there are games out there, but you have to you have to take that jump a little bit. Mm. If anyone's listening to this, our third 11 is still short for Saturday if you fancy a <laughs> game in Thamesden. Uh, Phil, let's hear about your game on Saturday because that sounded uh, quite fun. Yeah, well, I'll keep it as brief as I can. Um, I played in the first team at my club um, in the Essex League. Uh, and we got 2.33 in our 50 overs. It's a time game, but we batted our full 50 overs. Um, and at lunch, or at tea, uh, had my tea, went downstairs with a, with a cup of tea and walked along the corridor, and there was a bloke already in his pads. And I hadn't seen him when we were batting, really. I hadn't really paid much attention to their fielders. I saw him, and he just looked like one... Look, I looked like a cricketer, okay? And I thought, oh, you're going to get runs. I didn't say a word to him, just walked past him with my cup of tea and I thought, oh, you're going to get runs. Everything about it worked, right? All the muscles were in the right place. The pads were perfect. The thigh pad didn't bulge out too much on one side. The helmet fitted immaculately. And also, crucially, tellingly, gun and more bat, gun and more gloves, gun and more pads. We go out to defend 230-odd, um... And this chap uh, got 135 in about 25 overs uh, and was out comfortably before the end. So he got 135 in about 170, 180. Uh, no one knew who he was from our team. We're not the most diligent of, of, of blokes, I suppose. Turns out um, he's a chap called Grant Rolfson, 25-year-old, uh, South African, 47 first-class games at an average of 41. Highest score, 224 not out, 800s. Uh, 38 list day games, average of 43. Highest score, 147 not out. And he is last year's South African one-day player of the year on the cusp of making his international debut. Now, look, this is all part of the fun, sure. And this in first-team cricket, you get these 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 lads, you know. I mean, just, well, it is worth saying. But my God, first... I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, though. but your, your, your first-team player actually a very high standard of club cricket yeah so yeah. it's not it's not kind of freakish yeah. sure to have to have a really good overseas cricketer you know and he'll be on the payroll at the club and and fair play to him and this is a bit of Ricky CC in Essex you know they're a really brilliant club Essex twos play there so sure it's not freakish yeah. 
by any means. But it was funny that we kind of came out, came off, sat in the dressing room. Yeah, that was good. Not anyone know who he was? No, no one knew you. <laughs> so I sort of Googled and had a look. Turns out he's this lad. Uh, yeah. But it just, I couldn't help but enjoy it. He, we've got a really good bowling attack and a couple of quicks. One in particular, you know, bowled a sharp spell. And as I say, Essex 2's play there, so it's a good pitch. Um, and he was just pulling, pulling you right in front of mid-wicket. You know, just sees it so early, right in front of mid-wicket. Uh, just a stunning knock. I guess lost, what, they lost a, we lost at least half a dozen cricket balls <laughs> during it as well. My question was, if, you, if you're playing at that standard, you have to look really, really good to stand out in terms of just how you're carrying yourself? Yes and no. Yes and no. You know, there's still, for all that there's loads of talent there. Uh, and another lad got 90 batting with him, but you could, there was no, no, <laughs> it was clear who the pro was. And the lad who got 90 batted beautifully, right? But his, his trouser leg was, was halfway up his ass and, you know, the jumper didn't quite fit and all of that. And his bat was a bit knackered and taped up and all of that. And so, yeah, there's, it's still club cricket. But then you just have this sort of shimmering beast who emerges out of the dressing room and he's already 70 not out before he's faced a ball, you know. Anyway, it was all good fun. We got smashed, as as clearly. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's good fun to dip my toe into first-team cricket. I don't play much of it, you know, um, mainly because I'm probably not good enough for it. But it was fun anyway. You made a runnable 20, Phil. 22 from 23. Yeah. I also made a runnable 20 this weekend, um, so good week for that. Uh, anyway, that is all we have time for on today's show. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Ben. We'll be back straight after the Headingly Smash. Sports Social Podcast Network.